The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Get over to uh, Tan Jeff just to let people know there are about a dozen seats or so inside if anybody wants to move inside. Um, and also a reminder that the uh, Sati Center lives in the economy of Dana. And, um, oh gosh. <laughs> and there's a, a, a place near the door on the way out for uh, checks that should be made to, I, um, to the Sati Center. Yeah, but Tony, let me expand. Make sure you make the check to Sati Center, not IMC or Meta Forest. It makes the treasurer's job quite difficult if you fool around with that. <laughs> fool around. <laughs> so people can move up some more and really crowd in here. Appreciate that. So what what uh, what can I say about Han Jeff? He's um, one of our leading scholars and translators and providing access to large amounts of material from our tradition that would otherwise not be uh, available. Uh, he's a friend of uh, IMC and the Sati Center. And uh, boy, are we happy to have him today. And, and I'm excited about uh, hearing him talk about the roots of Buddhist romanticism. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the title. <laughs> there are copies. I don't, we may not have enough, but those who have iPads, you can download, and that would make our life easier. Um, I don't know. I don't see a lot of people with iPads, but if you do, you can download off the Sati Center website. Okay. They titled this "Romancing the Buddha." That title was not my idea, because <laughs> it leads to all kinds of misinterpretations. <laughs> Mary Magdalene of the Buddhist tradition. Um, <laughs> we're going to be talking about um, the influence that the German Romantics have on the way Dharma is taught in the West. That's basically the theme. Um, it's going to require a little bit of history. In fact, more history than I usually like to get involved with, but it's necessary. So before we talk about the influence that they have on how the Dharma is taught, I'd like to give a brief sketch of what the Dharma is in the Pali Canon. Um, So we have something to compare with, a kind of a baseline comparison. Then we'll get into some of the changes that have been made, how they can be traced back to the Romantics, who the Romantics were, what they taught, and then why they're their thought has been so influential. Most of us have forgotten their names. Um, if, if someone asked you who is Friedrich Schlegel, who is Friedrich, and they're all Freds, by the way, um, Friedrich Schlegel, Friedrich Schleiermacher, Friedrich Schelling. There's a German, but they're Freds. <laughs> Friedrich von Hartenberg, and who, who have I forgotten? Oh, Friedrich, Nova, uh, Friedrich Hildren. They, most of you would say, I don't know who these are, so I've met the Germans. But they came at a particular juncture in European thought, uh, which has since had a huge influence. So many intellectual historians have said that ever since their revolution in European thought, there haven't really been any revolutions. We're still living in their mindset. Um, also, there's a mistake thinking that romantics were all about being 
narcissistically interested in your own emotions. And there is that element, but there's a lot more. And it's the other parts that we're going to be getting into today. Um, so, but first, a brief sketch of what the Buddha taught, so we can have a baseline to compare what's happened to what the Buddha taught. Um, the Buddha said that he focused on one problem, or one main question, which is the fact of suffering, and then how that suffering can be put to an end. And everything he touched on, everything he taught, was related to those issues, even when he taught other issues like rebirth or um, things about cosmology, it all came down to, okay, what are you doing that's causing suffering and how you can put an end to that? That's the issue he focused on. There are a lot of other issues that he would put aside because he said they're irrelevant. Um, there's no overarching system to his thought, and he doesn't touch on very many metaphysical issues aside from the issue of karma and the consequences of karma. The cause of suffering, he said, is the craving that leads to becoming. Now, he's not saying that all desire is bad, but specifically there are certain types of desire that would lead you to take on becoming. Now, the question, of course, then, is what is becoming? Becoming is your sense of who you are in a particular world of experience. And this can include anything from your being you, the, the body you have here in this physical world located right now in Redwood City. But it can also be a psychological kind of sense of identity in a psychological world. Um, if you're a coffee fanatic, you have probably figured out that the coffee is back there. That's an important part of your world right now. Okay? As long as your desire is focused on coffee, you are someone who desires coffee and the coffee urn is back there. And the relevant parts of the world are the parts that get you to the coffee urn and the parts that get in the way of your getting back to the coffee urn. <laughs> and your sense of identity sur surrounds, okay, I'm the person who wants the coffee, I'm the person who will be happy to get that coffee, I'm also the person who has certain abilities to get over there to the coffee urn right now. Okay. Suppose you forget about coffee and you're starting to desire something else. Okay, your sense of the world will change. Your sense of who you are will change. Um, and all of that is becoming. Your sense of who you are in this world. Now this is very important because we'll find out later that the Romantics, when they define what the spiritual quest was, it's all about becoming. So keep that in mind. Now, there is a path to the end of suffering, which involves the skills to overcome these kinds of craving, to let, let, be able to let go of them. An important one of these skills is right view. Um, the opinions, you know, they're not knowledge yet until you've gotten to the end of the path, but the opinions you hold on to as useful working hypotheses to get along the path, particularly involving, okay, what is suffering, what is the cause, how you can put an end to it. Um, there's a clear delineation in the Buddhist teachings between right and wrong paths. The Buddha said the, the wrong paths, like the wrong view, wrong resolve, all the way down to wrong concentration, are like trying to get milk out of a cow by squeezing the horn. <laughs> um, there is a very clear sense of right and wrong here. And the right and wrong is based on basically what works and what doesn't work. The path is motivated and maintained by a sense of heedfulness. The sense, okay, my actions really do make a difference. They can be very dangerous if I'm not careful, so I have to be very careful about how I act so I can act in a skillful way. Um, it also, it's based on the recognition that your mind is not innately good. It's not innately bad either. It's got good and bad tendencies kind of mixed in together, and you have to be very careful about which ones you, which ones you act on. The path is also motivated in, by a sense of what they call sangwega. You look around and you see the world is just full of dangers in all directions. And you realize, okay, you've been basically trying to take 
take on a sense of identity within any of these worlds, and you realize that no, no matter what world you take on a, a sense of identity, and it's going to involve suffering. There's a sense of terror or awe that comes with that. And that's one of your motivating factors, is you've got to get out. Right view also involves knowing which lines of thinking or questions need to be put aside for the sake of focusing on the problem of suffering. Um, these include things like defining what yourself is. Do you exist? Do you not? The Buddha said, don't ask. And that's putting aside, hmm? I'm not loud enough? Yes. I have a fuzzy cheek. Yeah, okay, sorry. Okay. 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 Um, basically knowing which questions to put aside, like defining who yourself is, speculations about the cosmos. In other words, questions that really think of things in terms of becoming. You know, is yourself the same as the body? Is yourself different from the body? Is there no self? Is there a self? Um, is the world infinite? Is the world finite? Is it eternal? Is it not eternal? Is there some God back there who has a plan for this? Is there total chaos out there? The Buddha says, these are the things you don't have to think about. Think about what you're doing that's causing suffering and how you can put an end to it. Um, the path, when you follow it, leads to a transcendent goal where suffering, the suffering caused by craving no longer exists. This is the essence of the teaching. Again, this is something to be kept in mind because a lot of romantic thought says there is no essence to anything. But he says there, this, there is an essence to the teaching and it is something transcendent. It's outside of space, outside of time, totally unconditioned. Um, it's even beyond oneness and non-duality. Okay? That's something that goes even beyond those categories, because as the Buddha says, both the sense of oneness that you can attain or a sense of non-duality you can attain are conditioned or fabricated. Once you've achieved this, you reach the end of suffering, your task is done. Now the Buddha says, again, it's, it's a final attainment you reach. He says, this cannot be found in any other tradition outside of his, outside of his teaching, i.e., if you're following the wrong view, wrong resolve, whatever, you can't find it. Wherever there is right view and right resolve and the rest, okay, that, that is some place where the truth will be found and this attainment will be found. The skills involved here are culturally independent. I mean, it doesn't depend on the fact whether you're American or Asian or African. The fact that suffering is basically the same for everybody, the causes are the same for everybody, the path is going to have to be the same for everybody as well. Um, these teachings are not some sort of visionary's view of the cosmos that were, or transmission from a god. It's basically the re recommendations of someone who is able to solve the problem and is, wants to pass on the instructions on how you can solve the problem as well. So you might think of kind of a guide left behind by an expert so you can get the same results that the Buddha got. There's a very definite co course of training involving virtue, concentration, and discernment. And in order to make that course of training clear, the Buddha said he taught what was called the cross-questioning of his teachings. I.e., he wanted his teachings to be left open to the ability to ask for people to ask questions. What does this mean? What does that mean? Um, he contrasts this with what he calls training and bombast. Um, training and bombast is when the teachings are really beautiful, they feel really nice to hear, they just kind of feel soothing as they go past your ear. But if you ask people, what does this mean? Um, you're discouraged to ask questions. That's training in bombast. Um, we'll get to that later. <laughs> okay. He knew that the ability to pass on these skills was subject to the vagaries of time and civilization. He knew it wasn't going to last forever. It's 
So he tried to set up a community in which people could take an apprenticeship with people who already knew the skill and could pass them on. Because it's not just a matter of reading the text, but there's also the skills that you're going to learn on a personal level, where the student can question the teacher and the teacher can question the student and can kind of observe each other's behavior. Um, he also set tests for judging which of the records that he passed down are, are accurate. You know, if the particular teaching when you put it into practice leads to these results, then it counts as a genuine teaching. He also set down tests for deciding whether you're worthy of passing judgment or not. Okay, do you have the qualities to give a fair judgment of the teaching? Because there, there's, it's not just anybody walking in off the street. You've got to learn how to develop concentration, discernment. He asked two things mainly, which was that you be observant and that you be honest. And those are the, those are the two basic qualities he wanted in anyone who was going to taste these teachings or test them. He also did not view improvements in the Dharma as a positive thing. Um, there's that passage in the readings um, we'll get to later where he says, every time you make a change in the Dharma, it's like putting a chink into a drumhead. And after a while you put all these pegs in. After there's a crack in the drumhead, so you put another peg in, another crack, you put another peg in. And after a while you get so there's nothing but pegs. And the drum isn't going to sound like a drum anymore. He called this improved Dharma. He said, this is not going to be an improvement. Um, this is what's going to kill the Dharma. Um, the example he gave was kind of like, it was like counterfeit money. Okay, there can be improved Dharma around. And he said, this is basically what causes the Dharma to pass away, in the sense that when there's only genuine money around, you trust the money that you get. But if there's not genuine money, if there's counterfeit money around, then you get really dubious even about genuine money. This causes a lot of doubt in people's minds. So he didn't see changes as, an, as, a, as a positive thing. So that's kind of the outline I want to give first of what the Buddha taught and what, we, what record we have of what the Buddha taught in the Pali Canon. Any questions about that before we go on? Yes. We have a walking uh, mic. Uh, in addition to the walking mic, we've got to mention there's hearing-assisted aids out there for those who need it. Could you give an example of a change that was happening in his time that he said? Well, there are actually two examples of monks who um, said, you know, I understand the Buddha's teaching to be X, and the other monk said, well, no, he didn't, the Buddha didn't teach that at all. They take the guy to the Buddha, and the, the man, even though the Buddha says, no, that's, that's not what I taught, but the man says, well, that's how I understand what you taught. Uh, one case was that there's nothing wrong with monks having sex. <laughs> And the other one is, which is that your consciousness, the consciousness you have right now, goes on to another being when you die. It's this, this, this sort of everyday consciousness you have that passes on from one life to the next. So it was people's interpretation of what was being said and their... Um, Reinterpretation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, and their um, insistence that that was correct, that they were actually right, yeah, seeing yeah. correctly what the Buddha was saying. Right. And he had to say, no, that's he had not to say right. no. And what's amazing about these passages is that you know, they get dragged in front of the Buddha, and the Buddha says, no, I didn't teach that. And he says, well, this is how I understand what you're talking about. And it's, there are two of the passages where the Buddha is really, really harsh. You know, worthless man, he says, which the Mokha Bodhisattva. Bodhisattva. Um, the Buddha didn't wasn't the Buddha wasn't Thich Nhat Hanh. He wasn't always nice, you know. 
can get pretty strong. There's one place where he call it, calls Devadatta a lickspittle. Do you know that one? Yeah. <laughs> you know what it means to be a lickspittle? It means if someone spits something out on the ground, you lick it up. You know? uh, <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> Devadatta was not happy, huh? Any other quick questions before we go on? Okay, that's what the Buddha taught. The question over here. Just the follow-up. What was the answer to the question on consciousness? To the okay, well, the, when the Buddha asked him, okay, what consciousness are you talking about? And, you know, basically the Buddha taught two kinds of consciousness. There's regular consciousness of the senses, and then there's what's called consciousness without surface. And the man says, he said, I'm talking about the first one. Just regular consciousness at the six senses, this is what goes on. As far as consciousness without surface, which is basically the consciousness of nirvana, that doesn't get discussed in that sutra at all. And you always wish, it wouldn't, couldn't, what, what, wouldn't have been interesting if the Buddha had branched out a little bit. So, so that's, that was what the solution was there. What? I'm sorry, I have to speak up more. What can we do? What can we do to make things louder? Yeah, there are some areas that are a little bit dead in terms of the... You're near the jackhammer, that's a problem. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. Speakers don't reach there? Okay. Okay, let's turn it up a little bit and see what happens. Yeah, and also for... For people who are asking questions, please use the microphones because people who have the hearing-assisted devices, they, they actually rely on the microphones to hear what the question is. Okay. Um, and we're also recording, so okay. thank you very much. Okay, so basically what we have in the Dharma is the Buddha's recommendations on how to solve the problem of suffering. He puts aside other issues that are irrelevant and particularly issues that are framed in the terms of becoming, i.e. what your identity is and the infinity or lack of infinity, etc. of the world. And that this is a teaching that is culturally independent. It doesn't depend on whether you're white, black, yellow, red, or whatever. Come from America, come from India, come from China or Thailand. It's all the same teaching. It's all the same Dharma. Okay, this, I'm going to give you a few quotes from modern teachers now. And the question is going to be, okay, what happened? Um, okay, here's a quote. In the Buddha's opinion, to train in staying open and curious, to train in dissolving the barriers that we erect between ourselves and the world is the best use of our human lives. Egolessness is a flexible identity. It manifests as inquisitiveness, as adaptability, as humor, as playfulness. It is our capacity to relax with not knowing, not figuring everything out, not being at all sure about who we are or anyone else is either. Another one. There's an underlying unity to all things, and a wise heart knows this as it knows the in and out of the breath. They are all part of the sacred whole in which we exist, and in the deepest way they are completely trustworthy. We need not fear the energies of this world or any other. Another quote, It is the goal of spiritual life to open to the reality that exists beyond our small sense of self. Through the gate of oneness we awaken to the ocean within us. We come to know in yet another way that the seas we swim in are not separate from all that lives. When our identity expands to include everything, we find a peace with the dance of the world. It is all ours, and our heart is full and empty, large enough to embrace it all. Another quote, our job for the rest of our life is to open up to that immensity and to express it. 
what happened? <laughs> Another one. It is easy to get caught in the notion that there is a goal, a state, a special place to reach in spiritual life. When we enter the gateless gate, we come to the end of seeking. Before this in our life, we may have tried many ways to find enlightenment or become something special. Finally, when we enter the gate of the eternal present, we discover that we are not going anywhere. So, what happened? And what happened is the Romantics. <laughs> Give you a few quotes from the, the German Romantics for us to get a sense of what they taught. To romanticize the world is to make us aware of the magic, mystery, and wonder of the world. It is to educate the senses we see, to see the ordinary as extraordinary, the familiar as strange, the mundane as sacred, the finite as infinite. Sounds like a Dharma talk, right? <laughs> Another one. The individual is not just part of the whole, but an exhibition of it. The mind, like the universe, is creative, not just receptive. Whoever has learned to be more than himself knows that he loses little when he loses himself. Rather than align themselves with the belief of personal immortality after death, the truly religious would prefer to strive to annihilate their personality and live in the one and the all. Where is religion chiefly to be sought? Where the living contact of a human being with the world fashions itself as feeling. Truly religious people are tolerant of different translations of this feeling, even the hesitation of atheism. Not to have the divine immediately present in one's feelings has always seemed to them more irreligious than such a hesitation. To insist on one particular conception of the divine is to be, to be true is far from religion. Um, every relation of man to the infinite is religion, that is, man in the entire fullness of his humanity. Only someone who has his own religion, his own original way of looking at infinity, can be an artist. Okay, those are some romantic ideas about religion, and they sound very familiar. The influence they came through several ways. Um, to us down through humanistic psychology, um, through the comparative study of religion and cultural studies in general, and also the ideas of a perennial philosophy, that there is a perennial core to all religions that speaks the same. Um, and this perennial philosophy is basically question of what is your true identity, what is your true relationship to the, to the cosmos. The Romantics are actually the first modernists and postmodernists. On the one hand, they were first to grow up in the sense of an infinite universe. Um, they also developed a sense of irony towards all systems of thought, the way the postmoderns do. Um, and as I said earlier, they're not just emotional narcissists. One of the many ironies of Buddhist Romanticism is that those who denounce it are often practicing it without realizing it. There's also a postmodern ignorance I've run, against, I've run up to. People say, well, how could the moderns have an influence on us because we're all postmodern? And the problem is postmodernism is an extension of the Romantic view of life. That it's up to each of us to, what doesn't matter, what did the text originally mean, it's how we encounter the text, how we react to that text, that's the important thing to focus on. Um, I think part of the problem is that when history becomes purely subjective, subjective, people don't take it seriously, and they end up ignorant of their own history, of seeing what's shaping it. You know, George Santayana's thing, people who are ignorant of history are doomed to repeat it. Okay. This is what happens. My program today is to show how a lot of modern Dharma actually comes to the Romantics, that in the Buddhist terms it would be synthetic or reformed dharma, and that we'd be actually better off outgrowing it. 
This is a reverse of the usual dynamic. Many times people use romantic standards to judge the Dharma. And today I'd like to look at the romantic standards and judge them by using the terms of the Dharma. Um, the primary bad effects of romantic Dharma are one, it defines the spiritual quest in terms of you finding your position vis-a-vis -vis this infinite universe. In other words, it keeps you in becoming and allows for no escape from becoming. Even when you obliterate your personal identity and identify with the world as a whole, that still counts as becoming. Secondly, it teaches heedlessness. It teaches that you can trust your inner drives, that many times they are divine, it says, and that there are no real dangers in the universe. There's also the question of how romantic views are used to justify the way we do change the Dharma. Even people, it's called, people, you call people's attention to the fact that the Dharma has been changed it gets justified by using romantic views of history, saying that you know, every religion has to change as, as people change, the universe is an ongoing process, and there's nothing that has any essential um, eternal meaning or eternal, or eternal identity. Okay, um, so the method we're going to use today is a combination of what's called genealogy and cultural psychotherapy. <laughs> Genealogy is basically trying to trace ideas back, not to show that there is a, a, a sort of a coherent rationale to why we pick up a particular idea, but more to see how really bizarre it is certain ideas just manage to survive. There's a certain um, randomness to the way we pick up ideas from the past and carry them on. Um, And the purpose of this is to show that a lot of things that we're many times are told to be radically new interpretations of the Dharma are actually within our culture quite reactionary. We keep going back to old, old ideals that we had in Western culture and not willing to open us, ourselves up to um, what the Buddha taught. Secondly, in terms of psychotherapy, to see what may have made sense back when the Romantics were first formulated now no longer works to our advantage. A lot of the, you can see there's a lot of reason for why the Romantics thought the way they did, and it makes sense within their context. But when we look at our context right now, it doesn't make sense anymore. It's the same thing as you do when you go to a psychotherapist. Ideas that you picked up when you were a child may have made sense when you were a child, but if you carry them around into adulthood, you're going to cause problems. So I'd like us to grow up a little bit today. Um, our focus is going to be on the Pali Canon and on the Theravada teachers. Um, some of these themes will also explain why Mahayana is so popular in the West, but also um, it also shows you how many Mahayana doctrines have become transformed in coming to the West as well. And ideas about Buddha nature, what the Mahayanas in India said about Buddha nature is not necessarily what you hear nowadays about Buddha nature, um, but that's going to be beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about today. Also, I'm trying not to name names. When I read a, a quote from a modern Buddhist teacher, please don't ask me who said that. Um, this is partly as a Buddhist principle. When you're teaching the Dharma, you don't exalt yourself and disparage other people by name. So you leave it out. And secondly, we're, what we're talking is not so much an individual issue, it's kind of a cultural syndrome in which the teachers and the audience are all responsible. In the sense, you know, teachers will throw out some teachings and you, I mean, I've seen this happen. You know, when you give a particular Dharma talk topic that people like, you can see their eyes light up and they get interested. And when you talk about something people don't like, you can just feel the energy in the room. And if, you know, if, if you're 
not aware of what's going on, it's very easy to want to talk about the things that people like and what they don't like. I may have told you the story before about the professor of um, behavioral psych at MIT who had this habit of walking up and down in front of the room when he gave his lectures. And so the students, of course, being MIT students, decide, well, let's do an, uh, an experiment on the professor. When he's in this corner, we'll look at him, we'll, pay no- we'll, t- we'll take notes, we'll be very intent. And when he's in that corner over there, we'll look out the window, we'll chat with each other. <laughs> and sure enough, after two weeks, he was standing in that corner. <laughs> and he hadn't realized what had happened. So it's not that we're going to be blaming the Vipassana teachers or the monks, there are some monks in here too, um, but the audiences are responsible as well. What, you, what resonates with you, the teacher wants to teach. Okay? So, get started here. First we have to look at the, what they call the, the early Romantics in the German tradition. Um, it's a very small group of people that started out, and it's one of those interesting times in intellectual history where some really high-powered people were all together as a group for about six years and playing their ideas off of one another, they really heightened um, the creativity of the entire group. We're talking basically about a period from 1797 to 1803, very short period. Um, these people were two of them, what were in, at that time in Europe was to the avant-garde. Um, Berlin and a, and a university at the town called Jena, J-E-N-A, which is just down to the south, southwest of Berlin. Um, it was a university where the, the philosopher Fichte was teaching, F-I-C-H-T-E. Fichte was a follower of Kant. And this is right after the period, during the period of the French Revolution, Fichte was teaching the doctrine of freedom. There's an infinite freedom of the individual to shape your own sense of identity and to shape yourself in the world. In fact, this is how you, you knew that you, were, that you actually had a self. It was through this ability for you to shape the environment around you. And he talked about the almost infinite freedom that you have to take on an identity, to posit yourself, and then to posit the world around you. Okay, this is, as you can see, is a very strong sense of becoming. And during the French Revolution, especially at the very beginning of the French Revolution, there were, this was very popular. And so I attracted a lot of the more avant-garde people in Germany to Jena. By 1797, of course, the French Revolution had become to turn sour. I mean, there had been the reign of terror, the guillotine. Did you see that wonderful cartoon about the guillotine in the New Yorker a while back? There's this guillotine sitting in a couple's living room, and there are two couples there, and one of them is saying, the woman is saying, who has time for that anymore? It just sits there gathering dust. <laughs> <laughs> Well, back in, at this time, it was, they were still using it. Um, so, okay. So the cast of characters we're here, we have here, as I said, Fred, Fred, Friedrich Hölderin, who, was, who went on to become a poet, Friedrich Schlegel, who was a novelist and a literary critic, Novalis, who was, um, his real name was Friedrich von Hardenberg, but he also wrote poetry and a novel, Friedrich Schleiermarker, I love these names. Um, who was a theologian, and then Friedrich Schelling, who went on to become a famous philosopher. They also there are two women who were very closely associated with the group. There was Dorothea Mendelssohn Weitschlegel, Weitschlegel, excuse me. Um, in Germany, when you are widowed or divorced, if you're a woman, and then you remarry, they just tack on your new husband's name to your older name. So 
So it gives you kind of your history as you're walking around carrying your history with you. <laughs> so here he is. Here she is. Dorothea Mendelssohn Veit Schlegel. Here's another woman with a longer history. Carolyn McCallis Bremer Schlegel Schelling. And if you're interested, the, the story in his, before both of them is a really interesting story. We'll get into that later. They practiced what they called sim philosophy. Sim as S-Y-M, like a little symphony, but it was sim philosophy. The group would get together and talk and sort of toss, bounce ideas off one another. And it, there was kind of a heightening of, the, of what they felt, the sense of discovery they had as they were beginning to put together knowledge from all sorts of fields. Um, Dorothea herself um, wrote this passage. Um, oh, excuse me. Schlegel talked about the inner university as being a symphony of professors, and the woman he was shacking up with, Dorothea, wrote this letter to a friend saying, "Such an eternal concert of wit, poetry, art, and science as surrounds me here can easily be, make one forget the rest of the world," because it was a very intense kind of avant-garde group getting together. Their main field of study was philosophy. Now you have to remember, philosophy back in those days is not what it is now. It wasn't just one department out of many in the university. It was the overarching department. This is where you're, you took the knowledge that you gained in astronomy and physics and biology and all the other fields and tried to bring them together. Kant, you know, in addition to teaching what we regard as philosophy, also taught math, science, anthropology, um, lots of different subjects. And his duty was to bring everything together in one coherent body of knowledge. Now the problems that they were facing at that time, um, the big number one problem came from new discoveries in astronomy. You've probably heard of William Herschel. He was the astronomer who discovered the planet Uranus. But he, he was even more influential in his view of the cosmos as a whole. Um, and to give, an, give you an idea of the effect that his discoveries had on intellectual history, one of his main um, articles that he wrote on what he was seeing as he was looking through his telescope appeared in 1789, the same year as the French Revolution. In 1788, Kant had written his critique of practical reason. And at the end of the book, he talks about the sense of wonder that comes as you go out and look up in the nighttime sky and you see sublime order. Everything is just so huge and so enormous, but at the same time you sense behind it there's this very orderly rule of what's happening. Everything follows the laws of physics that, that Newton discovered. Eleven years later, Schleiermacher, in writing one of his books, he says, you look up at the nighttime sky and you see chaos. And this is the symbol for the infinite. Okay. So what happened? Okay. Herschel had written this paper in 1789. And here's an account of it in one of, the, one of the books written on this topic. Herschel's crucial observation was that some galaxies were evidently older and more evolved than others. Herschel said, we are unable to judge the relative age, maturity, or climax of a sidereal system from the disposition of its component parts. In other words, you look at it, you can tell how old it is. Nebula and star clusters are in effect like species of plants, he said, at various stages of growth and decay. Youth and age are comparative expressions, and an oak of a certain age may be called young, while a contemporary shrub is already on the verge of its decay. In other words, when you look at the age of galaxies, we're talking about huge spans of time. Now, he was the one who proposed that we live in an infinite universe and Earth is just on a little arm of the Milky Way. He actually figured out where we were in the, in the Milky Way by looking at the sky. He and his sister Caroline were kind of the, at the forefront of astronomy at the time. Um, 
in the same way that you know, Copernicus moved the center of the universe from the Earth to the Sun, Herschel came along and said, there ain't no center. It's infinite. It's huge. And we're just part of one galaxy. There are many galaxies out there. And the time frame that's required to think of a galaxy forming and going into dissolution, we're talking about you know, millions and millions and millions of years. It wasn't 6,000 years, you know, the way the later uh, people calculated the Bible. We're talking huge amounts of time. Okay, the fundamental force at work was gravity, gradually over time compressing nebulous gas into huge bright galactic systems and eventually condensing into individual stars. So that, for instance, a cluster of nebula which is very gradually more compressed and bright towards the middle may be in the perfection of its growth, while another type of cluster showing more equal compression or distribution of individual stars might be looked at as very aged or drawing towards a period of change or dissolution. Then Herschel goes on. To continue the simile I borrowed from the vegetable kingdom, the heavens are now seen to be resemble a luxuriant garden which contains the greatest variety of productions in different flourishing beds. We can extend the range of our experience of them to an immense duration. In a garden we may live successively to witness the germination, blooming, foliage, fecundity, fading and withering and corruption of a plant. Just so the universe presented is a various number of specimens selected from every stage through which the plant passes in the course of its existence, but brought at once to our eyes and viewed in one particular moment from the earth. In other words, we can see galaxies at all different stages of life. Now this blew people's minds. There's another astronomer who was writing letters to his pupils, said, Astronomy has enlarged the sphere of our conceptions and opened to us a universe without bounds, for the human imagination is lost. Surrounded by infinite space and swallowed up by an immensity of being, man seems but as a drop of water in the ocean, mixed and confounded with a general mess. But from this situation, perplexing as it is, he endeavors to extricate himself, and by looking abroad into nature, employs the power she has bestowed upon him in investigating her works. Notice there's no mention of God there. If this is just nature. Nature is infinite. Prior to this time, the only infinite thing that was admitted in Western thought was God. Now, now, the nat- now the universe is infinite. So that's one problem right there. We live in a universe with no center, where we were just living in one tiny little speck, one little speck out of many little specks out there. And the whole question of, well, what does your life mean in the face of all this? became a big issue. How are you going to relate in this? What, what has meaning, what has no meaning? Okay. Another problem that had come from philosophy at that time which was the view of the mechanical universe. Okay, live in a universe where everything operates according to Newton's laws. Does this mean that you operate according to Newton's laws? Does your body operate according to Newton's laws? If, if so, how do you have any free will? Okay. And there were two basic pictures of this. There was Fichte, who, who drew on Kant, who basically says, okay, we have this knowledge of our freedom. Even no matter what science tells us, we have the knowledge that we, do, we are free to act, and that our lives do have meaning. And it's by asserting that belief that we actually do create meaning for ourselves. This, of course, requires a leap of faith. How is it that you can do this in a, in a universe that's mechanical? And he just says, you just have to make that assumption, that you can. That was one. The, on the other side was Spinoza, in which he said, God and the universe are the same thing, what we experience as material reality and what we experience as mental reality are actually just two sides of the same thing. In other words, everything going through your brain now is basically a chemical reaction. 
you see it from one side, but a scientist looking at it would see it from another side, but it's the same thing. There's no difference between the two, just a point of view. And in a universe like that, there's no free will at all. Because everything has to follow the laws of physics. And all you're doing is just kind of experiencing from one side. Um, the laws of physics says they appear to consciousness. So on Fictus' side, there is the striving of free will, and on Spinoza's side, the attitude he counsels is a patient acceptance of determinism. Of course, there's a question of how are you free to be accept, even to accept if everything is determined, but that's beside the point. Um, it calls into question the status of te- what they call teleology, and what's, what's the purpose of all of this? Where is this going? And Fictus says human history is all about the exertion of freedom. The more, as human history pr- progresses, the more freedom you can push yourself, the better. Um, for, for Spinoza, he says, there ain't, we, don't, we can't even conceive of it, but there's a point to this. It just follows its laws, and it's going its, in its own way. Do these questions sound familiar? Okay. These are the questions that the r- Romantics were faced with. So, problem of infinite universe, the question of how can you be free in a universe where everything follows mechanical um, laws. And then finally, there was the question from politics and economics. Um, in Germany, there was, this was particularly um, an issue because on, in some of, the, some of the duchies, how do you pronounce that word, duchy, I guess? They were still living by medieval, medieval orders. And in others, they were much more modern. Frederick the Great had modernized everything around Berlin basically to maximize the revenue. <laughs> Because you know, it was expensive to be a, a monarch in the 18th century. You had to put on big parties, you had to have a big palace. Where are you going to get the money? You tax the people. How are you going to tax the people most efficiently? You have tax surveyors. You have, basically, you rationalize the economy. So people were suffering both from medieval places and also from the modern world, where everything is more rationalized. Um, here we can begin to see the postmodern side for some of the Romantics. They're saying, this is crazy, this modern world. They just kind of squeeze money out of us. Um, so, and given that um, on the one hand you had these problems in, in Germany, and then there was the French Revolution, which raised the issue of what extent can you actually reform society and find freedom. And the beginning of the French Revolution, um, Schelling and some of his friends and Holderin went out and they planted a tree and they danced around it in celebration of the French Revolution. And then later on they said, whoops, <laughs> maybe we don't have the freedom we thought we did. So that raises the question, again, between Fichte and Spinoza, is there a determinism to things that we just can't change or do we have the right to exert our, our will? Okay. So those are, the free, those are the questions they faced and their solutions came from a grab bag of 18th century philosophy, literature, science, religion. And they all centered on that issue of, I said, what I call theology. What's the purpose of all this? Where is it going? Um, part of it, they grabbed the image from Herschel, where he, exp- he described the universe as an organism. It's like a plant. It grows through certain stages. There's birth, development, maturity, and then decay. Um, in fact, someone once said that that article that I quoted from, Herschel converted his astronomy from being a mechanical science to being a life science. We're studying the life cycle of stars, the life cycle of galaxies, and so forth. So what is this issue of teleology? Now that he, he ties into two big issues from the 18th century, which is biology and aesthetics. Now to us, 
biology is one thing, aesthetics is something very far apart. But back in the 18th century they were put together, and in a few minutes you'll see why. From biology and physics came knowledge about electromagnetism, the fact that matter is not inert, it actually has energy. Prior to that time they felt, okay, matter has to be inert, it's dead, and the only way anything's going to move is if some conscious agent pushes it. Now they said, hey, wait a minute, matter has electric energy. It has magnetism. There, is, there are forces in matter, which what it does, it dissolves the boundary between mind and matter. Matter has force. Mind has force. Maybe it's the same force. And this issue had already been raised. And as far, as far as organisms, they were beginning to realize that in an organism, causality doesn't jo just go one way. There are different parts of the body are going to have an influence on other parts of the body, which then in turn influence the first part. There's an there's a interplay between cause and effect, with one part of your body giving signals to another part, and then that part of your body giving signals back. So they begin to see okay, causality doesn't just go one way. There's something called organic causality. The definition of an organism is something that is organized for the purpose of continued survival, but it has a purpose. This interplay of causes actually does have a purpose. That's actually what defines an organism. There's also an interplay between the organism and its environment. You give a stimulus and the organism responds. And in responding, it's going to change the environment, which then creates another stimulus that comes back. So the kind of their feet we're talking beginning to talk about feedback loops. And secondly, the organism goes through stages of development. It's heading someplace toward its goal. So you can see where the, this, this line of thinking is heading. We don't live in an organic universe. We live, excuse me, don't live in a mechanical universe. We live in an organic one. Herschel had said it was, the universe was like a big plant. This is what plants are like. There's actually an interplay of forces. So it's more organic. As far as aesthetics, um, I don't know if we're I don't know if we're ever going to, get to come to the end of this. Um, <laughs> I'll try to make it really simple. You've probably heard of John Locke. Okay. John Locke was basically saying, we don't have any ideas that we didn't pick up from our senses. You know, without and then we reflect on what we picked up from the senses and we try to make sense of the world. He had a student, whom we probably don't know, you know we never study him in philosophy or anything else. He's called the Earl of Shaftesbury. In fact, this was the person he was tutoring. The very first person to give a non-religious response to Locke, which is that we, do have, we don't have any innate ideas, but we do have certain innate qualities in the mind. And one of them is that if you see a moral act, it is beautiful. We're inspired by a moral act. There's a sense of the beauty of that morality. And that sensitivity to morality means that we're able to see the whole of a situation and to see how that act fits beautifully into the whole. So that, you know, human being as a member of society, if you do something really selfish, it looks ugly because it doesn't pr promote the whole of which you are a part. Shaftesbury was really big on interconnectedness. Um, and the fact that you are part of this whole, your moral acts are things that further the, the whole and further yourself at the same time. And he made the distinction between systems, which are organic in the sense that they are oriented toward an end. Different things come together for, for a purpose rather than a random collection of what he called aggregates. Now, just as an aside, this is where we get the word aggregate for the five aggregates. Ha. Ah. Okay. 
So you begin to see, can you see the connection now between biology, the theory of an organism, and aesthetics? Okay, there is a whole here, and the parts act together to further the whole in an in, in aesthetic in system. Um, and throughout the 18th century, people in England, Shaftesbury didn't have much of an influence, but in Germany, when he was translated in German, it hit Germany big. And a lot of philosophers picked up on this. They, were, um, they liked to pick up on the idea that a beauty of an object where all the parts fit together for the, for in the whole, there's a di- unity in the diversity. This is a really good symbol for the universe. Because um, the universe is nice and aesthetically whole. Gives us knowledge of the perfection of God's cosmos. Um, there was also an interest, revival of interest in the 18th century in Plato, and particularly Plato of the Symposium and the Phaedrus. In the Symposium, Plato taught that your love of beauty is an expression of your desire to return to something eternal. All, all love, even eros, sexual desire, has basically a holy component to it. When they're talking about sacred sexuality, they're talking about Plato. The sense that you, you know, first you have the desire for a beautiful, beautiful body, and then from that you, you begin to see beautiful things in nature, and that leads you to what is the source of all beauty? And it sort of becomes more and more. Uh, more and more spiritual as your sense of beauty develops. When we talk about Platonic relationships, it's not what Plato thought about Platonic relationships. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The other part of Plato that they really picked up on was from the Phaedrus, which was that when an artist has inspiration, it comes from a divine origin. There's some god out there that acts within you that inspires you to create an artistic piece. So aesthetics talks about the wholeness of things and how the different parts fit into it for a particular purpose. This is how aesthetics and biology come together. Now Burke, an English thinker at the time, threw a monkey wrench into this. He said there are two types of aesthetic experiences. One is the sense of the beautiful and the other is the sense of sublime. Now the beautiful is something, there's an object, you can see the proportion of its elements and everything feels nice and well proportioned, fits together nicely. The sublime is something that's so big that you cannot get any sense of any sense of order particularly, or a sense of how the pieces fit together, because it's just too big to comprehend. But it's overwhelming. Um, and the sense of sublime is really important. It's what um, motivated the, our national park system. Because that when they would talk about things in nature that were sublime, they talked about canyons, waterfalls, mountains. And for a long time, that, those are the only national parks we had. Canyons, waterfalls, mountains. It wasn't until 1933 that we had a swamp. <laughs> and that was some people's attitudes towards the national parks that changed. But in the beginning, it was anything, any part of nature that was just really overwhelming, let's set it aside as a national park so people can have a sense of the sublimity of the Grand Canyon. Um, the waterfalls in Yosemite and whatnot. Um, Kant built on Burke when he talked about beauty. On the one hand, beauty in its normal sense of something that's beautifully proportioned where all the parts fit together. He said, this is a symbol of morality. And the sublime gives you an intimation of a transcendent order and a transcendent purpose to all these things. Now these are just symbols and intimations. They don't prove anything. But they do give you this sort of aesthetic sense. He also wanted to say that this ascetic sense is what unifies the split between your pure reason, which tells you that everything is mechanical, and your practical reason, which tells you that you have free will. And he says you can't. There's no proof that either side is right, 
but when you go out and you sense the beauty of a natural object, and especially you sense sublimity in nature, it gives you the sense there's something bigger out there that really holds all of this together. You can't quite comprehend what it is, but you know it's there. Sense it's there. Okay. Schiller built on Kant by talking about beauty as the appearance of freedom. Um, and, and here it is, but it, freedom for him was not so much self-determination, whereas it is balancing the different parts of your personality. In other words, you're free because you have these drives, you have these physical drives, but you also have intellectual drives, you have moral drives, and they're usually in conflict. But he said, if you can find some way of bringing unity to them, that's a beautiful act. But at the same time, that's how you can express your freedom. Like, unlike Fichte, he didn't say you had total freedom, but you do have the freedom, given that you have conflicting drives, that you have the freedom to learn how to bring a balance to them. That's how you accept, accept it. So, freedom becomes less, it's matter, less a matter of self-determination, but it's a matter of trying to bring balance and wholeness to yourself. And he talked about something called the play drive. We have physical drives, and we have moral drives, and we put them together in the play drive. This is not a drive in your computer. Um, that you have this desire to want to be free enough to play. Now, play, when you're playing around, it's not totally arbitrary. There are certain rules to the games you play, but there's no compulsion. And it's in this state of mind where there's a sense of order, but there's no compulsion. That's where you find freedom. And that's also where you find beauty. Now, he's more interested in developing what he calls, um, he says, this sense of being able to step back from your drives and see them. That's what he calls the aesthetic condition. It's, and it's when people can get into that condition, then we can start having a society where people can actually live together. Up to that point, you're just being driven by your drives. But when we can step back, we begin to see, oh, it would be good if we could all fit together and work together. We'd be able to increase not only the happiness of the whole, but also the happiness of each individual person. So it's interesting, he makes, the, he says, it's your aesthetic sense that makes society possible. And for him, art is not, should not be teaching, it shouldn't be moralizing in the sense that it teaches specific moral duties to you, but it should be moral in the sense that it gives you a sense that you really do have this freedom of will and you should exercise it. That's what art really does. That's the good thing that art does. Now this kind of education that comes from art, he says, don't expect that the government is going to provide it. Schiller himself had a really bad experience in school. He had this duck and Don, the duke, where he, where he grew up, where he got his school, had been frustrated because he couldn't really govern the little duchy that he was in charge of, because they had a, they had a parliament. So he focused all his energy on governing this school that he had set up. And it was a very militarized school. And you know, Schiller, you probably know Schiller from Beethoven's Ninth. And he wrote the poem that Beethoven sent to me. Can you imagine one of your poems being sent to Beethoven's Ninth? <laughs> For, unfortunately, Schiller didn't live to see that. For him, the only role that he wanted the state was to reorder the economy so people would have enough time and leisure to have an aesthetic sense. Because he said, when you're working hard, especially when you're working in society, as he saw it then, this is one of the place areas where, where the romantics are quite modern. He said, look at the division of labor. No one can take pride in craftsmanship anymore. They begin to have the cottage industry where, you know, okay, you do one part of it, and then, then, then the guy comes along and takes one part of the, what you've worked on and hands it to somebody else to do the next step. So it was the beginning of the assembly line. You were living an assembly line thing, and there was no place where people could have an aesthetic sense that they had completed something. And he said, this is a very fragmenting experience. 
but he wanted the state to be able to reorder the economy so people would have that sense of craftsmanship and also have the sense of time, enough time and leisure so they could um, have the, develop this, what he called the aesthetic condition. The ultimate art was not so much a thing that you created, but you yourself became your work of art. Your, what he called, he called what he called the beautiful soul. Someone who was able to balance all the drives that you have, both physical drives and your intellectual drives, into something where your inclination to do the right thing was really in line with the right thing. He talked about two types of moral action. There's the moral action that has grace, in which your inclination tells you to do this, and it's, the moral law also tells you, your reason tells you this is what you should do. There's a nice movement together, and that kind of act, he said, is graceful. There are also acts, what he called acts of dignity, where your inclinations tell you one thing, your reason tells you something else. And you do the moral thing. It's not easy, but you do it. That act, he says, has dignity. I must admit, of all the people I've been studying recently, I really like Schiller a lot. I mean, um, he's got a lot of interesting insights. Okay, so this, the shift in aesthetics in Schiller goes away from the contemplation of art or nature to the aesthetics of artistic creation. What is it like to create a work of art, and particularly how do you make yourself into a work of art? This comes largely from his medical background. He was one of the early students of what was called philosophical medicine, um, which was the belief that when you're, treating a when you're treating an illness, it's not just a matter of treating the body. You've got to look at the mind. Because a lot of the causes of disease come from the mind. You've got to treat them together. Um, and so his sense of creating the sense of the wholeness of the individual was important for him. Now bear with me for a few more minutes and I'll finish this list. Okay. Okay. Um, it was at this time also that the history of art was being developed. There was a man named Johann Winkelmann, Winkelmann excuse me, who studied <clears throat> Greek art. He was the person who got pe people onto the idea that, you know, the Greeks actually were better than the Romans in terms of art. And when he talked about Greek art, he didn't talk about individual artists. He talked about how to understand art in the sense of the development of artistic styles. I mean, he basically invented art history. There's a certain style that would develop. There's the early, middle, late version of the society style. And it was important to see it in the context of the culture that the art was created in. And art developed, these styles developed organically, in the same way that the universe develops organically. He influenced a man named Herder who said, you should, who said, you should actually see all intellectual activity this way. Everything that a person thinks or does should be seen as a kind of art. And there are going to be developments of styles that develop organically and go through time. And he said, wouldn't it be wonderful, instead of just studying a book, we could study the author of the book and see how that author was influenced by other people and had an influence on other people behind him. Now for us, we say, hey, you know, that's what we can read about in, in our universities all the time. But for him, it was an un unrealized ideal. In, in this intellectual activity as art, he also saw in particular religion as an art. People respond to their sense of the divine and they will create texts. And it, your, your, uh, sort of your sophistication as a human being was that you would be able to appreciate texts from all different religions from all different times. It gives you a sense of the infinite. That the, sort of the divine is working its way through everybody in every culture. Religion is, the texts are especially well seen as poetry. You develop them each text is, is, is kind of an, is an artistic expression. The poetic expression is the best. And what you should do 
if you want to develop maturity, is you want to develop an infinite taste, so you can, can appreciate the creative force in the universe as it expresses itself in all cultures, changing over time. Okay. Okay. Two more sources of thought for the romantics. Um, we, you know, we hear the word romantic, and the question is, well, what's, what's romantic about them? I mean, they were having affairs. Um, of those five people I just named, four were having affairs at one time in their life. Three of them were adulterous, and they glorified it. One of them actually, Schlegel wrote a novel based on his adulterous affair, glorifying that you know because he and this woman loved each other truly, their love was more holy than the fact that she was married. Um, um, and then another one, who was in the, also in the midst of an adulterous affair, wrote some letters to his friend saying that this is a really holy novel. Because it was. So there, there is that side of the romantics. But the whole idea of what we call romantic truth comes from the word roman, which in German and French means novel. You want to look at your life as a novel. And the kinds of things you can say in a novel are very different from what you can say in a philosophy class. We'll get into this a little bit later. The thing about ro- the novels is that up to that time when you studied how to write literature, everybody went back to Aristotle, and Aristotle would tell you how to write lyric poetry, he would tell you how to write dramatic poetry. Aristotle didn't know anything about novels, because they didn't exist in the ancient world. And so you had this brand new art form that was free to create its own rules. So that's what they were doing at the time. And then finally, there's the influence of what's called pietism, in which in England was Methodism which was based on, based on the idea that it doesn't matter how you understand God, what matters is that you have the right feelings about God. The right, right feeling relationship in which you turn over your will to God. ANA actually came from pietism. You know, the idea that if you're going to solve your addiction, you've got to turn over your will to a higher, higher power. This basically was a pietist belief. It didn't matter how you, how you conceived of this higher power, as long as you had the right relationship. The reason this came about was because in the 17th century there had been the Thirty Years' War, where the Catholics and the Protestants all killed each other off over questions, very minor questions of theology. And a lot of people were saying, this is crazy. It doesn't matter how you conceive, you know, is God really there in the bread or is he not there in the bread and the wine? What's important is, do you have the right relationship to God in terms of feeling? And so all of this, all of these were the sources for the romantic thought. Can we stop for a minute now? Just if you have any questions about the sources that they're drawing on. Otherwise you're going to get dazed. <laughs> <laughs> so we have biology, which talks about organic unity, organic causality. We have aesthetics, which talks about looking at the unity that holds diversity. And also particularly about the, whole, the sense of the sublime, which is this beauty that goes beyond just proportion, but the sense that there's, there's some order to the sublime. Okay. I have a question. Yeah. So with Herschel and all of them, what was the view of the church or religion to their philosophies? Um, it was hard to argue against Herschel because he had the telescope. So did Galileo. So did Galileo. The church had a lot less power in that those days, because after all, the church had really lost you know, a lot of face with those 30 years war. And this was a time when people were saying, let's get free of the influence of the church and go more, you know, we tend to think of the Romantics as being the, the authors of let's go by our feelings, but actually, that actually came a couple of generations earlier. 
And Herschel was operating in that time when people were beginning to, to shed a lot of what the church... So the church didn't have the authority it used to have. And in fact, you had some clergymen with telescopes at this point. <laughs> this is when the Vatican actually set up its observatory. To, they felt if you can't beat them, join them. You know. <laughs> um, question? So, so between Burke and, and Schiller, I missed the 45-second Kant... Summary. Yeah. Could you yeah. just repeat that one, yeah. please? <laughs> this is what intellectual history is like. If it's, it's, if it's 10.30, it's Kant. Um, <laughs> um, Kant's main contribution to all this was his sense that it's the sublime that gives us our religious sense, that there is something bigger out there. Because when you're dealing in an infinite universe, it's sublime. It's not just a nice, neat little thing like the, like the solar system. But we're talking about bigger issues. And so for him, you know, it's in our sense of the sublime that our sense of religion is going to be found. That's his contribution to what the, that's what the Romantics picked out from Kant. The question here? In the dichotomy between uh, perfect freedom and uh, Spinoza's view, was Spinoza totally kicked out of the picture? He ended up being reinterpreted by Herder, because... Um, The story behind this is fascinating, but I'll try to keep it short. Um, there was someone who revealed that a famous Enlightenment figure named Lessing, in the last years, last months of his life, had revealed to this guy that he really was a Spinozist at heart. Now, up to that time, Spinoza was a bad word in, in Europe because they saw him as an atheist. Herder, though, immediately jumped on this and said, maybe there's more to Spinoza than we thought. But what he did was he, instead of God as this substance, he reinterpreted Spinoza as saying God is this infinite force and God is moving through the universe and you know, Spinoza was a mechanist in terms of his physics. Herder replaced that with an organic sense, you know, that there's this organic movement through history that's not known through reason but it's known through your aesthetic sense. So Spinoza was saved but totally transformed you know, by this idea that there's this infinite force and if we're acting through the universe, and of course we're part of the universe. And so that means the forces coming up within us are actually part of the divine force. So instead of knowing God through your reason, as Spinoza told you, he said, you know it through this artistic creative force that's coming up within you. So that's how you salvage Spinoza, by transforming him. And Spinoza wasn't around to tell him that he was up. <laughs> no, well, I mean, this is, this is what intellectual history is all about. You're not around when they take your thought. <laughs> I mean, they did the same with Kant. They did the same with all kinds of people. You know, changed it around. Back in the back, Evelyn. I'm just wondering about the practice, the practice element of of these romantic romantic people, and because I can feel that there's like this bliss feeling. Um, is the idea to kind of do what, is po- what you can to hold on, you know, maintain that blissful state or... Okay, well, we're going to talk about this in a minute, which is basically okay. their idea that the artistic creative moment is at best explain- explained by the organic metaphor in which you are taking in the influence from your environment and then expressing it. But for them, you want to be open to the infinitude of your environment. The more, the more open you are to the infinitude and also to the infinite change that's going on, the better your expression of it. So it's a lot about expression of yeah, this 
Because after all, the force that animates the universe is coming up through in your creative force as well. They also said you can't rest on your laurels. In other words, your creative force yesterday may not be the way you express the, want to create, express the creative force today. So you're constantly evolving. So you don't hang on to your artistic creations from yesterday. It also means and, um, that your sense of how you expressed your love today is not the same as how you expressed your love yesterday. Um, and how you express it tomorrow may be something else. In fact, I was looking at a video recently. I'm, I'm trying to re revive my French because I have to teach in French next year, France next year. And I heard this guy saying, this is what Dependent Core Rising is all about. He, who I loved yesterday, how I loved yesterday. I'm not responsible for yesterday, I'm responsible for right now, you know. And so let's enjoy the right now, and then tomorrow we have, may have another right now. See where this is going? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, you said earlier um, something like, and I, I um, went, you covered a lot of information, yeah, so I'll, sorry, I'll sorry. get a lot of what I say wrong, but um, I think it was the organic, uh, you, you were speaking about organic thought, organic mm -hmm. movement, and mm -hmm. how um, uh, different parts were uh, um, moving towards a purpose or a mm -hmm. cause, mm -hmm. something like that, you said. Moving toward a, towards, toward an end. Yeah. Right, toward, mm -hmm. toward an end. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know if it was intentional or not, you didn't say what that end was. And I, I'm, because that fits into many other things you said, as well as probably where we're going today. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm curious about... Yeah, there's about, a teleology to this, yes. Uh, what... what, what, what where that was headed. What is that end? What okay, well, an organ each organism has its particular purpose, like you to survive and to, and to reproduce before you die. Um, and then there's a question of how this particular organism fits in with the species that it's a part of, and how that species fits into the whole of the world. Now, some people said, well, obviously God has some good purpose, so it's all going for a good end. But then that becomes the question, it, just the general framework that everything, an organism works toward an end. If you view the universe as an organism, there must be some end to which it's going. And the different romantics had different ideas about what that end was, but they all had shared the same idea, it's going someplace. And either you can understand where it's going, or you can just kind of intuit, well, I don't know where it's going, but I know I'm part of this movement, so whatever creative force is coming up through me must be the creative force that's leading to that end. So again, it's either you can trust, in other way, either way you can trust something about this that it's all okay, even though it's too big to put your head around. There's an element, huge element of trust here, which again goes against what the Buddha taught about heed, heed, heedfulness, i.e., you can't trust everything that's coming up inside you. So that's where this is headed. Anything else? Okay, so, what did the Romantics make out of this? Okay, with the idea that everything is force, matter has force, the mind has force, we're all one. We're all part of a large organism. The oneness of being is the given, that they said, okay? This, 
You know, Spinoza said, okay, the, you know, the universe is their one thing. Okay, we're part of that universe. They picked that much up, up, up from Spinoza. So this, here they re- rejected Fichte, saying the universe is out there, we're in here, and we're fighting. Okay, they picked up Spinoza that we're all part of this one large being. We've lost our sense of oneness, though. And so we live in dualities. These dualities are artificial, and so the spiritual quest is to get rid of those dualities. Um, they decided they could combine Spinoza and Fichte to explain the, the role of freedom of a finite person in, in an infinite universe, but here the universe is organic. The fact that it's not mechanical, in fact it's organic, is what allows them to say, well, there is some exercise of freedom. And here they take freedom in Schiller's sense, and not that you have absolute freedom to shape yourself, but you do have the freedom to decide which of your drives you're going to follow and which ones you're not. And so you can try to find a sense of whole. So as I said earlier, that the infinite is now an attribute not of God, but of the cosmos. Okay. And as I mentioned just now, the, they replaced the impersonal determinism of Spinoza with the vitalism of Herder and Schiller, which is the idea that there's a force moving through the universe. And this force is organic and it's expressive. The highest expression of it is when you can actually express. You know, atoms, you know, atoms can't express much, but animals can express more. They can actually call to one another. Human beings can express more than animals. It's kind of a development of all of this same force. Um, okay, the universe is constantly evolving. It's going to an unknown end that nevertheless can be trusted to be good, because after all, it's God, right? God's got, got, got to trust God. So they rejected duality on that level, on the level of freedom. They, they, rejected, they rejected duality of the distinction between things in, wor- in the world. And it, was, and it was basically seen in three levels. One is that you reject the duality of human nature. Your mind and body and your reason, your sensibility are all parts of the same thing. It's not like your reason goes against your emotions, but they should work together. Um, it's not like your mind and your body are separate, they should be working together, because they actually are part of one. They also rejected the duality between subject and object. When you're looking at something outside, that is nothing really different from what's inside here. You're all part of the same reality. Um, subject and object here can be in this, between you and nature as a whole, and also you and other human beings. We're all part of a oneness. Art is a kind of education that helps overcome any sense of duality we have. It unifies society through love and art. Those are the two things that unify society. And you unify yourself with nature by your feelings expressed through poetry. So again, it's, it's the arts here that are going to bring about the unity that we're looking for. So the, relation, the basic proposition is oneness with all nature, a sense of being part of nature's ever-evolving purpose, is an immediate aesthetic intuition. In other words, when you open yourself up and are very receptive, you will sense this oneness. You will sense this power coming through you. So putting your, putting your mind in a very receptive state, and then from that receptive state there will be a creation of something. That's your work of art. Um, for them, the big issue, the big religious issue, is how to understand your relationship to the universe as a whole. Okay, now that's, that's a question of being. You know, who are you and what's the universe? How do you understand that relationship? 
So you can see here, here's, this is one area where the Romantics really were going against what the Buddha was teaching, because they're glorifying becoming. We're looking for a heightened state of becoming, in which you have a sense of oneness with the universe. Now the question, how is this relationship to be understood? Um, three of the Romantics we're talking about, Novalis, Herder, and Schlegel, talked about as an interplay between creative forces within and without you. Both the inner bringing the outer per, toward per completion and the outer bringing the inner. In other words, you become a more complete person as you allow the, the infinite universe to act on you. As you grow, um, and you do this not only by going out in nature and just kind of communing with nature. They also said, you know, if you want to understand how the universe is evolving, study history. And not just German history or European history, world history. They were beginning to have some sense of what was going on. You know, there was a world outside of Europe. You know, and that the thought of the world outside of Europe really mattered. It was, it was good to know. Now, these, these creative forces, because they are constantly evolving, there's no rules that you can take from anybody in the past. So the rules, each expression is free to follow its own rules. Um, expression must always be followed by a new openness because the universe is constantly evolving. So as I said, you know, what you felt about the universe yesterday may not be true about what you feel about it today. So you have to learn how to develop this state of openness to the forces acting through you. So we have new new ways of expressing it. Um, now the different thinkers had specific ways of looking at this. Um, and here I'll ask for your indulgence for a minute. Um, Novalis, I'll give you a little thing on Novalis. Novalis was the one who died young. He was the one who had a, was engaged to this young woman. She died before the age of 15. Can you imagine being engaged before you're 15? Um, but she died and he spent a lot of time at her tombstone. Finally got re-engaged, and before he could get married, died of tuberculosis. I mean, typical romantic poet, okay? <laughs> no. He said, there's this process of the interplay between the forces. On the one hand, you have to appropriate the world out there. I mean, in other words, there are parts of the world that you have to make follow your will. So that the world is no longer alien to you. But at the same time, you have to alienate yourself. In other words, you try to conform yourself to the object outside. You know, you see the sky. He, he wrote lots of, um, he, a whole series of poems called Hymns to the Night, in which he goes off and talks about how great it is to be out there in the darkness with the stars. I mean, he, and he talks about the universe you see up there in, in Herschel's terms. You know, there's this infinite number of worlds out there. Um, apparently he went to her, the woman's tombstone at, at night, um, in which you conform to the, what you sense outside there and just try to channel that sense of what you're feeling. He called this a state of the unconditioned when you're totally open. This is, how they defend, this is how they define unconditioned. In other words, you are totally open to the influences out there. Okay. And in doing so, and then you, then you reappropriate the rest of the world out there, each side gets created and extended by this process of the interplay. In other words, you are bringing the world to perfection at the same time the world is bringing you to perfection as you create more and more sensitive art. You can know yourself only by embodying and man manifesting your activity in the things that you have some creative uh, control over. But at the same time, you have to become part of something bigger than you are in order to do this. So there's an interplay between the inner and the outer here. And what he called self-alienation, this process of being totally open to things bigger than yourself, he said, is the source of all self-abasement, but it's also just the opposite. 
it is the basis of all self-elevation. This is the highest philosophical truth. In other words, developing that sense of openness that allows you to express. Um, Schelling, who was the one member of this group who was not a poet, he tried to articulate a scientific basis for this interaction between you and the cosmos as a whole. And he wrote about three or four different philosophies in the course of his career. He'd have these huge systems that would say, this is what makes sense of all of reality. And then three years later, he said, whoops, no, try it again. Kept doing that for a long time. Um, but he made some interesting comments. Um, he was, had a huge influence on Emerson, which we'll get to later. Um, and he based all this idea on, on artistic creativity, on a basic biology, the connection between what they called irritability, the fact that you would be sensitive to something and then you would respond. And then another term they used for it was sensibility, and that your response actually made, came from you're trying to make sense of these outside forces acting on you and to, to do an intelligent response. So it's not just random response like material things, but there is some plan to how you respond. So he tried to find the source of all this in biology. And his thought, the whole, the whole question of freedom, uh, for him came, came to me less and less any idea that you had any choice. He said, because you are finite, and this is where he's getting in, in falling more and more back into Spinoza, um, he said, the finite is nothing unless it is part of the infinite. And so you have to learn to see all of your activities as the totality of nature acting through you. So freedom becomes not freedom of choice, but freedom of self-expression. That, that plays a huge role in our society right now. I don't care if I have choices or not, but I want to express what I, what I feel. And Schelling was trying, was trying to give a philosophical basis for this. Okay. So how is this sense of oneness and purpose best expressed? Now Schelling, in his particular case, tried to create a system. And all the rest said, you know, given the fact that everything is evolving all the time, no system can contain this. All you have are just it's flashes of insight, flashes of inspiration. And so they're best created in different ways. Hurlderen said, the best way to create all this and to express it is through novels and poetry. And you might choose a particular philosophy based on your stage of emotional development. You're going through a bad period, you don't like yourself, I'll just say it's, you know, it's the, I can't help myself, this is the force of the universe acting through me. <laughs> At other times when you're being more creative in your life and things are going better, then you start believing more in free will. And I, I, it's easy to make fun of this, but, <laughs> but for him the whole idea is that there is no one system to contain things, but different systems will express what you need at that particular stage in life. And he actually gave an astronomical, uh, astronomical image for this. He says the, the, the course of a planet as it goes around the sun is an ellipse. It doesn't have just one center, it has two centers. And sometimes you'll, you'll tend more towards the center of freedom, and other times you'll tend more to the center of the outside forces acting in you based on your stage of development. Now, talking about stages of development, they don't talk about that in philosophy, but you can talk about it in novels. That, that's the ideal place. Um, philosophies, he said, are, being, are tested by being lived, and a novel is the best picture of how people actually live their lives. He wrote a novel called Hyperion, and this is one of the um, statements in the novel. Just as Jupiter's eagle heard the song of the muses, so I listened to the wonderful infinite tone within me goes on to claim that the beauty of the one and all is not something that you have believed or think about, but one has seen, he has seen and come to know it. Now if you stand up in a philosophy class and make that claim, 
Nobody's going to shout you out and run you over to the English department. <laughs> but if you say that in a novel, it can be very convincing. You get to trust the character, you empathize with the character, and you see, yeah, I understand, I resonate with that. Okay. Okay. So that's one way you express this sense of oneness and purpose of life, is through um, novels and poetry. Um, Novalis, the other poet, said openness should be cultivated by what he called romanticizing the commonplace. That quote I gave you earlier about romanticizing was from him. And your response is to what he called live authentically. Have you heard that word, having an authentic life or having an authentic response? Novalis was the one who came up with that uh, meaning of the word. And again, the primary form is through novels and poetry. Here's a quote from um, Novalis. Romanticizing is nothing other than a qualitative raising to a higher power by giving a higher meaning to the ordinary, a mysterious appearance to the ordinary, the dignity of the unacquainted to that which we are acquainted, the mere appearance of infinity to the finite, I romanticize them. The opposite of being a Philistine, which means to sustain a mechanical repetition of your everyday habits, is to be an authentic person, someone living outside the commonplace, someone who has subjectively transformed the commonplace into something magical. Here's a quote about Novalis. Novalis came to conceive the central issue of our temporal existence as that of authenticity, how to be true to ourselves as the kind of open-ended, temporal existing creatures we are, and how to be true to the fact that the choices we make about who we are are best themselves choices based, or excuse me, who, who we are and to be are themselves choices based on fully contingent matters that are not only themselves not objects of choice, but whose very nature is necessarily obscured from our view. In other words, we're not free to shape ourselves. Our only freedom is to take what lies beyond us and to fashion something out of it that we find that we can give a heightened reality to. And as he said, life must not be a novel that is given to us, but one that is made by us. In other words, go out and make your life into a novel by romanticizing it, bringing it to a heightened, heightened, reali- heightened sense of the reality around you and having an authentic response. As for trying to develop a philosophical system, he said, this is pathology. <laughs> You're trying to create a sense of being secure in this infinite universe, which is really beyond you because it's constantly changing. You can trust it, but there's no ground on which you can base it. Um, have you heard other Dharma teachers say this? <laughs> yes, okay. They got it from Novalis, whether they knew it or not. Um, okay. Now for Schlegel, oh my gosh, we're going to get anywhere, anywhere this morning, gosh. Okay. Basically, he basically said openness is to be cultivated through a twofold study one of inner re- revelation, i.e., your sense of the infinite that you have in the present moment and the study of world history, so you can see the general trend of progress of life. He said, this gives you a broader basis for expressing your inner freedom, because you have a bigger sense of things than you would otherwise. Um, He also talked a lot about what he called romantic irony, which was that the sense you know that you look at other people in another area of time and you see, okay, their, their thought made sense in their time. And you begin to wonder about Okay, the things that I see now, they are true for me, but maybe they make sense to me only because I have limited patients in my own time, which I don't know about. Therefore, you always have to step back from your creation and not totally identify with it. Um, In other words, you're never really, you're committed to something, but at the same time you step outside of it and say, well, this is only bound by time. So he called this a sense of romantic irony. We call it postmodernism. But he had that same sense right from there early on. 
he, he was a master of what was called the philosophical fragment. He wrote a journal that was full of just little passages that were you know, this long, maybe a sentence or two. And his idea of the ideal fragment was that it would contain dualities within it, so that nothing was really settled ever, but your thought was constantly moving on, moving on. Um, he took literally um, Novalis's recommendation to make his life into a novel. He had an adulterous affair with Dorothea Veidt, um, Mendelssohn Veidt. She was the, the daughter of a famous philosopher in the 18th century. Um, scandalized Berlin, then even scandalized him even more because he wrote a novel about it. <laughs> and it was very, and he basically saying this is, he gave a platonic explanation to this in the sense that his love for her was his, his quest for spiritual truth. And because his love was true and her love was true, it was more holy than the matrimony by which she was bound to her husband. Um, so that's what happens when you live your life as a novel. <laughs> <laughs> And his expression, he said, you, 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 basically his idea was that you would have expression of this in the universal truth that you felt, but then tomorrow you would have to take an ironic stance to what you said yesterday, because you were constantly evolving. Okay. Okay. The member of the group that finally brought all of this into religion was the man named Schleiermacher. Um, he, by the way, became a friend of Schlegel at the time Schlegel was writing that novel. And he wrote a number of reviews, you know, extolling Schlegel's, uh, the, the holiness of Schlegel's view of holy love. Well, it turned out Schleiermacher was having an adulterous affair of his own at the time. Um, imagine a theologian. <laughs> this Schleiermacher is called the father of liberal theology. And he said, you know, this, this sense of being an artist, opening yourself to the infinite and expressing something out of it, that's the religious experience. You open yourself to the infinitude of God and then you will have this creative response that comes out of that. So he defined religion as what he called the sensibility and taste for the infinite. Something is always immediate and individual. It requires an open, passive acceptance that then precedes your creative or expressive response. It, it dies when we try to grasp at the response, either our own response or that of others. He went some, went some, if, you give, uh, if you worship the Bible, you're worshiping a mausoleum of religion. It was once a living expression of religion, but now it's just a book. For true religion, you have to go back to your individual, individual inspiration. Um, he said that we should the individuality of religion. Each person has his or her own religious expression, and all traditions that in which this sensibility and taste for the infinite thrives, they're all valid religions. But it's got that requirement: you have to have that taste for the infinite. That's what religion is all about. Now, he probably wouldn't have counted polycanon as having a taste for the infinite, which is where some of this falls apart. Just read you a few quotes from Schleiermacher. Religion's essence is neither thinking nor acting, but intuition and feeling. It wishes to intuit the universe, wishes devoutly to overhear the universe's own manifestations and actions, longs to be grasped and filled by the universe's immediate influence in child pass childlike passivity. Religion wish wishes to see the infinite, its imprint, and its manifestation in humanity no less than in all their individual and finite forms. Religion also lives its whole life in nature, but in the infinite nature of totality, the one and all. Remember, he's, he's living in this infinite universe now. And wherever everything, including man, may press on or tarry within, his, within this internal ferment of individual forms and beings, religion wishes to intuit and to divine this in detail. Okay. 
Intuition is and always remains something individual, set apart, the immediate perception and nothing more. To bind it and to incorporate it into a whole is once more the business not of sense but of abstract thought. The same is true of religion. It stops with the immediate experiences of the existence and actions of the universe, with the individual intuitions and feelings. Each of these is a self-contained work without connections and with others, with others or dependence upon them. It knows nothing about derivation and connection, in other words, connection with one thought to the next. For among all things religion can encounter, that is why its innermost nature opposes. Not only an individual factor D that one would call original at first, but everything in religion is immediate and true for itself. In other words, you can't judge it. Okay. When you have persuaded another person to join you in drawing the image of the Big Dipper onto the blue background of the worlds, does he not nevertheless remain free to conceive the adjacent worlds and contours that are immediately different from yours? In other words, you look up at the sky, you see one thing, you can tell me, you see the Big Dipper, yes, but I can see other things as well. Okay. This infinite chaos where, of course, every point represents a world, is as such actually the most suitable and highest symbol of religion. Individual persons may have their own arrangement and their own rubrics for arranging their religious intuitions, and the particular can thereby neither win nor lose. Okay. Now, the other members of the circle picked up their religious ideas from Shalaramark. He, he joined the circle a little late, but then immediately they started writing about religion as well. Um, some of the ideas that they added, Hurlduren added the idea that all religion is in its essence poetic, in the sense that you're trying to express this relationship with the finite, the infinite, the finite is trying to express its relationship to the infinite. It can never fully do that because every expression is finite. So what's the best expression? He says mythology, in which things stand for other things. There's some kind of a symbolic relationship, but you can't really express this in philosophical terms. <coughs> So it's myth and poetic. Poetry is what religion is all about. Um, Schlegel called for a study of religion within the limits of art. This is a takeoff on Kant saying he wanted to study religion within the, uh, within the limits of reason alone. And Schlegel, Schlegel said, let's study within the limits of art. You pay attention to the combination of the infinite and the finite in symbolic forms whose symbolism consisted in that which by everywhere the appearance of the finite is placed in relationship to the truth of the eternal, and is in this manner precisely dissolved therein. The infinitude of the human spirit, the divinity of all natural things, and the humanity of the gods, he said, should remain the great eternal theme of this study. Okay. He also went, he went, he had postmodern take on this. He said, our understanding of this, of course, is a myth of its own. But it's the best myth that is forever lead to human progress. Okay. So, how to summarize all this before we break for lunch. Okay. okay, what they're basically saying is there's a total individuality in religious experience and there's no outside human religious authority. Your experience of the infant is your experience of the infant. Nobody can tell you anything different. Okay, But there is a need for religious expression and the ways it expressed follow certain laws. Okay. And these laws are this. Question, what is the basic religious question? In other words, okay, your relationship to the infinite. That's the question. It's a question in terms of becoming. The Buddha would have thrown that question out. You know? Then, nothing, what is the status of religious texts? They're basically poetry and mythology. And what are the laws of the development of religious thought? Okay, religions have to develop like an organism. 
they have their beginnings, they have their maturity, and then they have their end. And, and religions all have to be, we have to accept that this is how religions develop. So there are no eternal truths. There are no universal truths, aside from the truth that everybody's free. But everybody is free to express their relationship with the infinite. That's the issue for them. That's what the religious issue is. Do you have any questions on that? Yes. Mike. Uh, first, a quick question. What was the word you said Novalis used uh, the term of the unconditioned? Do you know the German word that he used? Undinglichkeit, um, something like that? It's, I remember that he has one phrase where he says, we, we search for the unconditioned and all we find are things. Huh. And the word dinge is in unconditioned. S say the word again that you said before. I think it's Undinglichkeit. Okay. Yeah, dingle is condition, but it's also, ding is also dinga is also thing. Yeah. He was playing. He was playing on playing on words. So. I guess the other question I had, so that you know, you used, uh, I mean, the, you talked about this idea of the novel as you know, we were creating our lives, mm -hmm. um, and if, we're, if, if what we think about our lives today is different than what happens the next day and so forth, is there a sense that we're we're learning something, or is is there is there any kind of coherence? In terms well, it's of going to be coherent as you express it. But then tomorrow you may have a new sense of the coherence. And then tomorrow, day after, day after that, you may have a new sense of the coherence. Um, so they're novels. Um, if you ever read any novels of these guys, they're pretty formless. Um, aside from Lucinda, where you know, there's a beginning and a middle and an end. Um, but with um, Hurlderin, he wrote Hyperion. And I was, you know, someone said, you know, if you're looking for a plot, there ain't any. <laughs> <laughs> But it's all these really fascinating contemplations of, um, you know, of the meaning of life and that kind of thing. Um, Heraldron is really interesting. I was talking to Peter Dale Scott just the other day, and he was saying of the, of the, in the past two or three centuries, he's one of the two or three top poets in his, in his estimation. And I read some of his poetry, and it's very, very strange, and it's very beautiful. Um, he was the one who went crazy after, at the age of 35. This is a bad sign. <laughs> yes, okay. Okay, question. <laughs> Behind you to the, to the left, yeah. Were any of these romantics pointing to something? Okay, their idea of pointing was that, you know, we don't really know where this is going, but we can trust that it's going in a good direction. Their idea was that human society is going to be developing toward greater and greater freedom, and that there are you know, occasional setbacks, but the general mo mood for that was to more and more society should be able to express itself in greater and greater freedom. And as what is typical with young romantics is that as they got older, the ones who survived um, got conservative. <laughs> in fact, they all ended up repudiating Prudiating most of what they had said earlier on. Okay. Question down here. Oh. Uh, well, I'm just flashing back to something that happened when I was an undergraduate at Penn. There was this uh, guy who hung around campus who was 
very popular with the students, even though he was kind of crazy. He had obviously been well-educated at one time, and then something had happened to make him mentally disabled. But he clearly had, at one point, been very knowledgeable and educated. We called him the professor. And I remember uh, he would always say, say these wise sayings that were sort of weird but sort of on target. And I was... Uh, he just stopped me once and he asked me, where are you going? And I said, well, I'm going to a lecture on the Romantic poets. And he said, well, I've read some of the Romantic poets. I noticed a lot of them died young. <laughs> so I say, as a gentleman and a scholar to you, be Romantic, but be Romantic objectively. <laughs> Jesse? Hello. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is that uh, in the poly tradition, there's a distinction between perfect and not perfect, and it's seeming that the romantics are saying that that distinction is either unimportant or that the imperfect is perfect in some way. Let's just change it from perfect to skillful and unskillful. And there's a belief in, in the Buddhist tradition that certain things are unskillful across the board, and certain things are skillful across the board. Whereas the Romantics say there are no across-the-board rules. Again, what is, what is the proper expression of your sense of the infinite today may be different from what you felt yesterday and what you're going to feel tomorrow. And nobody's really in a position to say that you're wrong. So it's very different. And just to follow up, so also the, the idea that now is perfect, there's no goal to remove that. They did have a goal, and they said that your sense of the now is always going to be limited by the fact that you are finite. Um, and as an artist, you want to be able to open yourself up more and more and more to the infinite so that you can get a better and better sense of what the now is. But there is no overarching... Because the now is always in the sense of movement. So there's no you know, static or no stable kind of perfection or stable kind of way of expressing that or understanding that. And as a finite being, there's always going to be limitation. You're never going to achieve complete oneness. It's going to be a little bit outside of your reach. But you have to keep striving. That's their take. Yeah. I mean, there's no end to this. Question. So, um... I'm not sure if you mentioned this already, but um, one one thought that I had was that um, there's since every expression of or one's relationship to the infinite is totally personal, that the way to realize that would also be totally personal. So exactly. Yes. So there are no methods either. There's no method. Well, the only method they have is, as I said, trying to be more and more sensitive, and Schlegel added, well, study world history history of other religions, history of other cultures and that kind of thing. So it gives you a larger sense of what the human enterprise is all about. That's about it. Um, Emerson, before we break for lunch, one of the reasons we we were influenced by the Romantics is because Emerson really picked up on this. And we, we think of Emerson as being kind of the quintessentially American thinker, American poet. And his contemporaries were all saying, what are you bringing this German stuff in for? I mean, they knew where it came from. It came from this crowd. <laughs> what else can I say? Um, 
And Emerson really ran with the idea that okay, nobody can judge anybody else's religious inspiration. That there's, there's, there are no objective standards and there's no method. It's just kind of, it all becomes a matter of art. And your judgment is, as with any artistic judgment, it's you judge what you like and other people will judge what they like and nobody can say anybody's wrong. Question over here. Where's the, where's the nearest mic? Oh, there's one over there. Yeah. Testing. Okay, good. Um, Go ahead. Yeah, the question I you know, as you were speaking and as you were discussing these different people, I was one of the one of the issues that I think is a is a big one in our society at present time is defining our terms mm-hmm. or even lack thereof. Mm-hmm. I mean, some terms that seem to have a fairly clear definition even 40 years ago, such as conservative or liberal, yeah. mm-hmm. are now very, very amorphous and very confusing. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so when we discuss you know, uh, philosophers from two or 300 years ago, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm wondering how, even, how close to understanding you know, what they were trying to... Um, mm-hmm. Define or, or or express, um, we are coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering, is that a, is that a question that has arisen for you, and, and if so, how have you dealt with it? Well, again, it's as I said earlier, that, that a lot of people have pointed out that certain terms have not changed that much since then in Western philosophy, um, like the idea of living an authentic life. That's carried on throughout um, the sense of what artistic creation is all about. That art is, that, you know, standards of judgment in art. Kant was the person who basically said your 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 standards of, of artistic perfection or whatever are totally subjective, and that's an idea that's carried on quite a long ways. We're still living in an infinite universe. Um, our sense of whether the universe is organic or mechanical that that goes back and forth from generation to generation. Um, but it's, it's amazing how much has actually stayed the same. I mean, you look at these people's pictures, and they look very different. Um, yeah. At least they weren't wearing little wigs or anything by that point. They'd stopped wearing the wigs, but um, in that sense, you, there may be some differences. But there's an awful lot here that actually has stayed the same, in the sense, and particularly this, this idea that, you know, religion is an art form. This is what liberal theology is all about. This is what liberal religious thought is all about, that it's more kind of an individual art form that each person has the right to choose and nobody else can, can judge them as to the expression of their religion. There's, there are no objective standards in religion. Can you have the mic? I mean, even the word art, I mean, you know, you could you could talk to a hundred people today, or a hundred people a hundred years ago, and get a and get a hundred different definitions. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't think it's that that different. I mean, what what was new about them was that they had admitted the novel as an art form, and we still recognize that as an art form. Mm-hmm. And their ideas of novel it didn't have to have a plot as long as it talked about expression of character. Well, that's that's a definition right there, expression of character. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Question in the back. 
working? More a comment that uh, I study a lot of cultural history. That this period in history, turn of the 19th century, 18th, is was formed the idea of what we still hold as what a person is. Right. As what like before that, Mozart wore periwigs, mm -hmm. Beethoven wore a suit like we wear, mm -hmm. and we're still stuck with that. That's what I, that's Every, their thesis of today. They talk, yeah. <laughs> but it's you know the whole question of what a person is. It, it's like nowadays you see you know people. Modeling, modeling their lives on reality TV shows or just what they see on TV in general. And here people were modeling their lives on the novel. So there's that element of difference. So we, you know, we have a different... But when, you know, when they say you know, art imitates life, life imitates art. Um, and Facebook, like expression, privacy is no longer an issue. Right. It's self-expression. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Question over here. Um, excuse my confusion here. I think I, I have a, a couple of questions with, within all this. Um, it seems to me what you've presented is um, a, a long, a, a continuing paradigm, this Western paradigm, the, the romantic paradigm. So this afternoon's um, thesis then, is it that that paradigm is attempting to absorb Buddhism mm -hmm. and, and work with it right. versus um, actually those who want to take Buddhism and uh, explore the actual end of suffering um, and the, um, the confusion in, in, for example, picking a teacher or the path and, and how to assess right. is this exactly uh, actually what the Buddha said or is this being confused with this whole romantic issue? Is that That's going to be it. And the question, of course, comes up. There are going to have to be some changes as things come to a different society. And, the, and what changes change the essence and what changes don't affect the essence? And that, that tends to get blurred in this because the romantics say there's no essence to anything. So just one follow-up question then. Um, at the beginning of the talk, you gave um, several... Um, you read several several pieces. Um, some of those sounded as if they had a lot of, uh, yeah, Mahayana, Vajrayana. Uh, Vajra well, there's, there's a lot of parallels between some aspects of Mahayana and the Romantic thought. And that's one of the reasons why Mahayana is so popular in the West. Because <laughs> you read that and, you and, and it sounds like, it sounds like they're talking about the same thing we're talking about. Now, I, you can put a question mark next to that, too. I've told the story, I think, I don't know if you told it here, about the friend of mine who was teaching English in Korea, and she'd taken pictures of American life to show to her students when over there. And she, one, one series of pictures was in a Howard Johnson's restaurant, and there were hippies sitting at the, at the counter, and the kids were saying, oh, gosh, this is so foreign. We're talking Korea in the 1970s. Um, and they finally got, she had this one dispenser that was on the counter, and she said, can you, can you, figure out what this dispenser is for. And they, they saw it, and she said their eyes lit up, and they all said, chopsticks. And she said, no, straws. <laughs> and so we do the same thing. We read certain concepts in the Mahayana, and they say, wow, that sounds really familiar. And so they would go for it. You know? so, so and in, in Theravada, it's, the, the fit is further...
The fit is further apart, but we still manage to say, ah, chopsticks. So, so then, uh, one last follow-up question then. Um, ma- the Mahayana, Vajrayana, mm-hmm. Zen, mm-hmm. developed from India through these different paths, mixing with different cultures. Right. How much of those Buddhist religions, as you kind of mention it, how much of those actually are accurate according to what the Buddha taught? That's a topic for another weekend. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, that's, that's beyond... The, beyond well, I guess the just the sense of those cultures mixed, as our culture is mixing. Well, every, so, culture, every, every culture is full of individuals, and different, individu- different individuals make the mix different. So are we actually taking those mixtures and saying it's Buddhism when, in fact, it, it, it isn't what there the Buddha taught? Yeah. Mm-hmm. One more question. Break for lunch. Um, I just wanted to get a, sen- a little more of a sense of the place of ethics. It, uh, um, it sounded like it was really uh, about aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was there any other place of ethics in, that, in, that view, in those views? Well, in Schiller, you have a very definite sense that aesthetics is about living the moral life. And he had very clear ideas of what the moral life was. Um, the Romantics... They were kind of like the hippies of... <laughs> I mean, you see, as I said, of the five, four were having extramarital affairs. Three of them were adulterous affairs. Um, so that doesn't give you much of an inspiring example in terms of ethics. <laughs> so this is one of the reasons why ethics gets pushed off to the side and all this, because it's more this aesthetic sense of wholeness and sensitivity and then creative expression. So let's break for lunch. And we'll meet again at one.